0: Our verses today conclude the high priestly prayer of Jesus, the prayer that Jesus prayed out loud in front of the disciples at the end of the upper room discourse, after Judas had been sent out, after the feet of the disciples had been washed, after they had been told that his hour was upon him. And for this reason, their hour was upon them as well. And their hour included the world hating them and killing them because of him. And this prayer was directed exclusively to the Father. And he had, and this prayer had as its main theme, one purpose. Jesus was praying for these men. We saw that back in verses 6 through 19. And in our verses today, we're going to see that he's praying for us as well. But however, the main purpose of this prayer, the one thing that he desired and we see highlighted throughout this prayer, is glory. Glory to the Father and glory to the Son. He said in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And in verse 10, he said, All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Look for glory in our verses today as well. The point that I'm trying to highlight is that our life, the one that is found in Christ, the one that Christ explains, and the one that he explains this way in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. That this life is not about us. We are benefactors of this life. This life is given us. We don't deserve it. We do nothing to earn it, and we can never do anything to repay God for it. But we are expected to act because of it. When a baby is born, the moment that it enters this realm, we say that it is given life. In all actuality, we know that it has been given life nine months previously. But it was given life. It did nothing to earn this life. It did nothing to deserve that life. And it can't do anything to repay its parents for that life. But what it does is act in this life. It begins to grow, to think, to feel, to explore, to strengthen itself until the moment that it is born. And then the real growth, the real exploration, the real actions begin and there are expectations made of that new life. We have markers for it to hit, standards that are are expected for it to hit, growth charts, cognitive skill test, muscle development test. And if those markers aren't hit, if those standards aren't met, that child is classified as being special needs, not normal. And we weep and we mourn because that's the case. And saints, the reality is that there are expectations that are made on us because of the life that we have been given. There are markers that are set in our maturing, in our growing, in our development. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. James 1.22, be not doers of the word, or I'm sorry, but be doers of the word, and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 1.9-12, and so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we're even told of the tools that God has given us in our maturing and our developing. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. He gave us apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measures of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But the reality is that because we don't understand this new life, the life that we've been given, but think that it's just an add-on to the the old life that we had, because we try to live in the world, to live for this world. We have verses such as Hebrews 5, 12, and 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This was the reality of those saints in Corinth. That church that was allowing a man to live in outright sin and remain part of it because that was the loving thing to do. Paul addressed them in 1 Corinthians 3 1 through 23. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Ouch. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still the, of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul knew that we should not settle for living the life of merely human. The the same life that those that don't have the life that God gives. They are merely human. We are cut above. We are set apart. We are a royal priesthood. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be sons of God. Before we begin to dig into what it was that Jesus prays for us, I want to draw your attention back to the absolute certainty that Jesus had in the power and sovereign control of his father. Even before facing the most difficult challenge of his life, his betrayal, torture, death, and then having the full force of the wrath of his father poured out on him, even before this happened, he was able in complete confidence to declare in verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This same confidence, this same love and power that the Father had for him was also the same love and power that the the Father had for those men sitting in that room as well. Because in verse 6, Jesus prayed, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And even in verse 20, and beginning to pray for us, for you and me specifically, Jesus said, I don't ask for these only Speaking of those men, but I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word. And he could only pray for us sitting here today. Pray for those within his church in this manner, with this confidence, because of the character and nature of his Holy Father. The accounts that are given to us of the actions of the disciples of, the betrayal of at the betrayal of Jesus. The account of the actions of these men at the torture and humiliation across their actions, their cowardice and unbelief as they cowered behind closed doors, locked doors, as they deserted the ministry that they have been given. Those accounts are given to us not to shame those men. They are merely acting as humans. Humans that may have lived with Christ, been taught by Christ, been amazed at Christ, but the Holy Spirit had had not yet come to live within them. And this was the reality that Jesus told them back in chapter 14, when he said, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you, and he will be in you. But at that moment, in that upper room, that advocate, that other paraclete, he was with them. He had given them hearts to love Christ, to know that he was God. But their knowledge, their love was incomplete because he did not come inside of them yet. And for this reason, they acted completely human. And this is why we are given the testimonies of their lives prior to Acts chapter 2. Even after the resurrection of Christ, and even up to his ascension, these men were acting still merely human. They were still asking the wrong questions, and they didn't understand the meaning behind the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of Man. But then came the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, They were gathered in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit, the advocate that had been promised, the other paraclete that had been prayed for, when he came and filled those men and women with themselves, they were no longer merely human. They were transformed. They were made alive, and they were given new life. And they instantly began to act in that new life. Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. They were no longer cowering in fear. They stood in faith and they acted in faith. And they spoke. And the things that they said on, the, on that day are reflective of the new life that they have been given. Peter began addressing those that were opposed to Christ in this manner. Verses 20 through, through 25 of Acts 2. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning this. Did you catch what it was that was at the core of the message that Peter proclaimed? He began preaching the word. Now can you see the supreme confidence of Jesus in our prayer today? The very thing that he began praying for us with. Back in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We are sitting here today because it was the supreme will and foreordained plan of God that we would be sitting here today in belief in new life, because these men, those men in the upper room, they acted in faith, the faith that they had been given by God and was now being empowered by the Spirit, who now indwelled them, no longer just coming alongside of them. And when that happened, they were no longer merely human. And we are no longer merely human. We are set apart. We are a cut above. And these men, because they have been given life, new life, they acted. And their actions were the catalyst for the greatest transformation that has ever occurred on this planet. The spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was the will of God, empowered by God, and even prayed over by God, that that happened. But saints, as special as these men were, the men who who would be used to birth the church, to lead the church, and even some of them would be used to write the word of God for the church. As special as these men were, those that believe in the Christ because of their words are not second-class citizens. Listen to what it is that he prays for us in verse 21 that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, we can hear verse 21 and think that what Jesus is praying for is unity within his body, that we be one. And in a sense, it is as desire that we are unified, that we are all one. But being one in each other, as good as that is, is not good enough. His desire is that we recognize the supreme difference of that life that he he has given us, that life that is eternal, that can only be found in knowing God and his son Jesus Christ. This life is not an add-on to the life that we had prior to being given this life. This life is not a course correction. It's not an attitude adjustment. This life is completely other than It's holy. It's of God. And it is God. We used to be merely human. And the one reason being human has any value at all was that we were created in the image of God. Now we have been recreated. We have been given life. This is the meaning behind us being one. That we should recognize that we're not just one with each other, but that we are one with God. We aren't separate from him any longer. We're no longer under his wrath. And we're no longer aliens and foreigners. We are his sons. We are his children. We are one. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, we are in them. And listen to the reality of who you are in them. You are created in Christ, Ephesians 2.10. Crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. Buried with him, Colossians 2.12. Baptized into Christ and his death, Romans 6.3. You're united with him in his resurrection, Romans 6.5. Seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Christ is formed in you, Galatians 4.19, and dwells in your heart, Ephesians 3.17. The church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.15 and 12.27. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13.5. And we are in him, 1 Corinthians 1.30. The church is one flesh with Christ, Ephesians 5.31 and 32. We gain flesh. Christ and are found in him. Philippians 3 8 through 9. Moreover, in Christ were justified, Romans 8:1, glorified, Romans 8:30, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1.2, called 1 Corinthians 1:9, made alive, Ephesians 2:5, created anew, 2 Corinthians 5:17, adopted, Galatians 3:26, elected Ephesians 1, 4 through 4-5. This is the life that we have been given. This life, this eternal life, is not an add-on to our old life, to the human, merely human life. This is life, eternal life. John Calvin said of this life, our life in Christ, of the reality of the gospel. He said, for this is the design of the gospel, that Christ may become ours, and that we may be ingrafted gra- into his body. We are one with Christ. If you have been redeemed, if you've had your heart regenerated, if your eyes have been unblinded, if your ears have been unstopped, if you've been given the ability to recognize your treason against God, your need for a Savior, if you have been given the ability to recognize Jesus as that Savior and have run to Him, then this is the life that you have, that has been given to you. It's yours. Not someday. It is yours now. But you may be sitting there scoffing, smugly thinking to yourself, I don't need life. I have life. Because I am all that. That really I'm not a sinner. Thinking that I am a good person. And if this is you, be warned. That that life that you have now, the meager existence that you have, even though there is good within it, happiness found within it, even though you've been given a degree of peace, of pleasure, you know that this is not life. It can't be because it's full of pain and hurt and death right alongside that brilliance of that sunrise, the majesty of those mountains. In the same moment that you wonder at them and love the life that you have, there are animals and people that are dying, hurting, being cruelly treated, maybe even by you. And you know that all the money in the world, all the free sex, all the wild parties, all of these things will not remove this reality of the sin and the lack that's in your life. That vast gulf that remains between you and the God that created you. Ask Kurt Cobain or Robin Williams or Jim Carrey. Sinner, you have only one hope. And that is to flee to Christ. You must be reconciled to God. And this can only happen through Christ. Flee to him. In him and through him is life. Real life. Eternal life. And to those that flee to him, that true biblical him, he will grant access to the Father. He will give them eternal life. He is, he, I'm sorry, he in his divine knowledge leaves his children, though. Those whom he has given this life to, he leaves us here. Those that he has made one with him, he leaves us in this world. Those that he has loved with the same love that he has for the son, he leaves us in this world. And he does it for a specific reason so that we might learn of this new life and act in this new life. And the purpose of our new life, the one that we've been given in remaining in this world, filled with people who don't desire this life, that purpose is given to us as well in verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the reason he leaves us here. We are left here in this world that's not our home in order that we can be a witness, testify to the reality of the God that saved us. Does that sound like your life? Is that a summation of what you are all about? Why you got up this morning? The thing that drives you on a daily basis, is that what you would classify as your purpose in your life? This is the third time in this prayer that Jesus has said, so that, or in order that, when he said in verse 21. The first time that he said that is found in verse 11, when he says, I'm no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are one. And then he uses the same phrase, the same word in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And the things that I speak in the world, I'm sorry, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And now he uses it for the third time. That they may be all, they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And using this word, this phrase, in this, three, in this way these three times, Jesus makes it clear the goal and mission of the church, and even us. The goal, the mission that is found in the unity that we share. It's just not within us. It's within the Godhead. And for this reason, because of this, the unity of the church demonstrates to the world the reality of God, the beauty of God. Saints, let's be honest here. This is not the reality that we have experienced within the church. Let's be honest that the church has given God a black eye through its actions, which is one reason that the critical race theory has taken Such a strong hold within the church. Because we don't live in the reality of the life that we have been given. The church is supposed to be the reflection of the beauty of God here in this world. We, the church, are supposed to love, to act, to purchase, to spend in the reality of our new life. That life that is found in Christ. The life that is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19 But because we have not lived in this new life, we've segregated each other. We've split the church based upon ethnicities, cultural biases, what you like to do. This is why we have biker churches, cowboy churches, black churches, Hispanic churches. We have brought our old life in with us into the church. And we kill each other in our hearts by not esteeming each other above ourselves. But we can change this reality of what the church has been and what the church has shown the world that Christ is. And we do that by living like Paul, determining to know nothing about each other outside of Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. Meaning that Paul determined to think the best about the saints surrounding him. That if they said something that could be taken wrong, that he would believe that they meant well by it. That he would confront them if they had wronged him. That he wouldn't murder them in his heart by by thinking bad thoughts about them. Holding on to grudges, hurts. Thinking that they could. I'm sorry, thinking that they wouldn't besmirch his character because he loved them enough to call them out in sin. He actually thought that if I call this brother out in sin, that he is actually going to love me because of that. Can you believe that? And how did he do this? How did he live in this new life? He tells us how. He would be in prayer for them constantly. Ephesians 1.16, I don't cease giving thanks to you or for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, our, Lord, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. First Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Philemon 1.4, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers the reality is that you cannot harbor ill will or think ill of a person that you are praying for. Your heart will be knit to them. You will come to love them and desire the best for them. You will esteem them higher than yourselves and you will build up the body of Christ. You will strengthen the church and rightly reflect the beauty of God to the world when you act in this manner. Do you have a hard time hearing from somebody in this body? Do you think of another, uh, think ill of a person here, wonder at why they do what they do? Well, pray for them. Labor in prayer for them, and you will be amazed. The change will happen. But it will be you. That that change will happen in. Your heart will be healed. Your heart will be changed. And the church will be strengthened in this. And the church will glorify God more in this. We, the church, are one in Christ. One in our new life that we have been given. One with God. And the reality of this is just that. This is reality. But there is more that is given us in this new life. Verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. And that they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Saints, if that verse doesn't blow your hair back, if that doesn't ignite your very soul, I don't know what will. Hear it again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you love, love them, even as you love me. We are loved by the Father, by the Son, in the same way. The Father loves us in the same way that he loved the Son. Saints, force yourself to think. Stop what you're doing, quiet your mind and your soul. We are told that we are to be holy, for he is holy. And we have no idea what that means. We are told that we are given life, eternal life, that is found in knowing the Father and the Son, Jesus the Christ. And we have no idea what that means. We have been told that this life is made manifest in the word, and that knowing God is found in knowing the word. And we have no idea what that means. And we are told here that we have been given the glory of God. And we have no idea what that means. The holiness of God, just like the glory of God, just like the word of God, just like the eternal life of God was given from the Father to the Son and then given from the Son to us. Jesus began this prayer by asking that his Father consecrate his original glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Verses 1 and then verse 5. This glory is best understood to be that which is his essence, his being. His glory is his name, that he, the Son, has taken upon himself eight times throughout this gospel. This glory is the same glory that he had from eternity past. The same glory that Isaiah spoke of in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah when he said, In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, the host of the whole earth. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin has been atoned for. This glory does not belong to the church any more than the holiness of God belongs to us or the church, any more than the eternal life that's given to us belongs to us or the church any more than the word belongs to us of the church these are all gods but they are given to us and we are found in them and they are given to us for one purpose the glorification of God not for us not that we have a best life now. Not that our marriage gets fixed. Not that we are, feel good about ourselves. These things are all ours. And they're all ours to bring glory to him. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Saints, once again, marvel at the reality of who you are in Christ. Marvel at the love of God for you, the life that you have been given, the glory that you have been given, the holiness in which you now live. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we but we know, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes in Himself purifies himself as He is pure. First John three one through three. but it's important to keep in mind that unity in and of itself is not the goal of this prayer. Jesus isn't concerned with ecumenical unity between those that call themselves a church and another church. Like-minded gospel-driven churches will find unity with each other, despite minor doctrinal differences. But the goal of us being united isn't found in us, it's found in him. That's the truth of Isaiah 6, and the truth of Isaiah 6 is truth, and the the truth of 1 John 3 is truth, and the truth of the glory of God being ours is truth, but these truths aren't our truths for us. They are his for him, and understanding this reality, getting this reality is the only way that we can truly grasp what it is what is meant when Jesus prays that we become perfectly one. This is never accomplished through the SBC. This isn't accomplished through any church network. It is only accomplished in and through and even for God. And all of this seems unreal. Me telling you, you sitting there hearing me tell you that you are holy that God sees you as holy, that he has made you holy. It just seems unreal that we have been given his glory, that we are loved by him with the same love that he loved his son, that we have been given the same eternal life, that we will be given the same glorified bodies, that we are treated the same as the son. This all seems unreal. It seems almost wrong, because we know ourselves, because we know that in ourselves, it is wrong. We don't deserve these things, any of these things. And so in our minds, we just content ourselves, thinking that if I get to heaven, I get to be a doorman at the throne room of grace, I'm going to be happy. We know that we don't deserve to be a doorman. But we content ourselves thinking, that's the best I can ever attain for. But that's not the reality of who we are in Christ. Listen to the reality of who we are. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's going to take a moment to get to where we need to go. But hang on, this statement was being made against those that still held that we needed to observe all the Sabbath rules. And the answer to that statement, to that challenge is this, Christ is our Sabbath. And that since God rested from his work, since we are now found in him, we find our Sabbath in him. We are the ones that have entered God's rest. But then he goes on speaking about this rest in verses 11 through 13. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. We're we're told in verse 10 that we have, have entered this rest. And then verse 11, we're told to strive to enter this rest. So which is it? Do we have it or do we need to work to get into it? The answer is yes. Yes, we have been given his rest and are in his rest. But we need to work to strive to enter into it. And the reason that this is, is that the life that we have been given, the glory that we have been given, the holiness that we have been given, is wrapped up in these bodies of death that are our old life. Which is why the author of Hebrews quickly points out the means that we use to strive to enter that rest. The thing that we've also been given by God. And that thing is the word. The sword of truth that divides, discern. And in these verses, we're meant to also understand. Read those verses on your own. Hebrews chapter 4. Go through and look at them. We're meant to understand that the word is God himself. It divides. It cuts. And then he sees. Right back to back. It is to him that must all must give an account. The author of Hebrews is so confident in our standing with and in God, though, that he ends this thought with verses 14 through 16. He says, Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What he is saying in that verse is for us to know what it is that we say that we believe. We've all made a confession, a belief in Jesus as God and Savior. What he is saying in telling us to hold fast to our confession is to get to know the one that is that confession. Holding fast is being held fast. It is having full confidence in the one that is holding us fast. And how does that happen? By knowing the one that holds us fast. It's found in studying to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. It happens by living in faith. Having God prove through putting us in places and situations that are impossible. And then bringing us through them that he is holding us fast. It's all in Jesus. And then Hebrews 4:15. He says, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Stop. Think about what I just read. The reality that we have in Christ been given by Christ. Those realities are just that. And at the same time, Jesus knew the fight that you have towards holiness, towards sanctification. He stepped down out of eternity into the same flesh that we are clothed in. He faced the same issues that we faced, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and you sit there in your, in your chair saying, that's not true. He didn't face the same thing I'm facing. He was God, and that's heresy. He faced the desire to take the easy way out, to not love, to not obey, and he could have chosen at any moment In his entire life, he could have chosen to not obey, to not love his father. This is the humanity of Jesus. And to deny that he could not have sinned is a heresy of the first order. Which is why the author of Hebrews ends verse 15 in this way. Yet without sin. It was the love of the Father, the glory of the Father, the holiness of the Father, the eternal life found in the Father, and obedience to the word that kept Jesus, that held him fast. Jesus could have fallen, could have chosen his own desires over obedience, just like Adam did. But Jesus knew the Father. He knew the value of him. He knew the love that is found in him. So he leaned into him, leaned on him, trusted in him. And this is the meaning for us striving to enter into his rest. And this is the means to strive for this rest. And even the rest that is found in him that will be spoken about in verses 25 and 26 of our verses today. The emphasis is all on knowing the one that is our rest. This is why we must make the ministry of the word the central thing in our life. Why we must make knowing God the banner that flies over the entirety of our lives. And it's only through the word that we can know God that we can align our lives with his, that we can know the mind of Christ, which is ours. And because of the reality that these things are ours now, verse 16 of Hebrews 4 is also our reality. When he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace To help in the time of need. We can and should boldly with confidence enter into the throne of grace. That same, the very same throne that Isaiah saw that was filled with the glory of God, the one that caused him to fall on his knees and proclaim, I am a sinner, and then have the Lord proclaim that he is a saved sinner. This throne is the same throne that we are told to draw near to with confidence to boldly enter that throne room of grace because the author author of Hebrews knew that it was there in the presence of God, in the glory of God, that we would find mercy and grace in our time of need. Saints, is this you now? Do you long to enter into the presence of God, to receive mercy and grace? You've been saved, but you long for his peace. You long for the joy and glory that is found only in the presence of God. You long to enter into that throne room and receive mercy and grace, but you don't find them. No matter how much quiet time you spend, no matter how much you pray, no matter how hard you try, they just won't come. Because you're trying to manifest his glory, his life, his holiness, his grace in your actions and in disobedience to his word. You haven't made the word the primary means of knowing him. You haven't made the word master over your life. You haven't submitted your old life. You've tried making your new life an add-on to your old one. But this is not the will of God for you. This is not the prayer of Jesus for you. This is not the life, the eternal life that God has given you. Hear his desire for you. Back in John 17, beginning in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. His desire is that we be right by his side. His spirit indwells us now, but that's not close enough for him. He desires us to be right where he is. That's a prayer to his father for us. He desires us to see his glory, the glory the father has given him before the foundation of the world. And we're told that he gave him that glory because the father loves the son for this reason. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. John ten seventeen, He knows that in seeing his glory, in being where he is, that is where we will be most content. Where we will be most fulfilled. And it's his desire for us to be with him. And he goes on praying for us. Making his desire for us known to the Father and us. He says, Righteous Father, verse 25, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, he's speaking of us, these know that you have sent me. I have made, th- made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And these final sentences of this prayer is found the meaning of knowing the Father of knowing the life that we have been given in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, we are told how we can finally find peace with God, how we can come to know the Father and be known by the Father, because Christ, the advocate, the original paraclete, came and made his name known to us. He's given us his word. He has manifested the glory of God to us in his death, burial, and resurrection and obedience to the sub- and subjection to the word. But we think that we can know God through different means. We have not been taught to know God, to understand the reality of the life that we have been given in Christ. We have not been taught the importance of the ministry of the, of the word of God in our life. We haven't been taught the importance of the church in our life. And for this reason, we don't understand our life, that eternal life, which is found in knowing God. We don't understand that it's lacking. But how can we read verse 26? How can you hear verse 26 and think that what we have experienced in this life is the reality of this verse? I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is that demarcation line between the life that most Christians live and the life of those who we would call zealots, radicals. The lives that the disciples lived after the Spirit came to live in them were lives completely submitted, given over to the Lord. The lives of the believers that came to be known, that came to know the Lord through their ministry was by and large marked through obedience as well. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews chronicles the lives of saints who lived in the life that that they had been given as well. Lived by faith in the God that had given them this life. Picking up in verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? For, would, for time would fail for me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of liars, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Would that be us? So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. This is what living in the new life, knowing the one that is life looks like. Not that you have to forsake everything and live in a monastery or commune. You live in the world, but we're not to be part of it. You recognize that the things of this world, The world system, the things that the world system esteems, that they are at enmity with God. Their politics, their religion, their idols, their toys, they are all at enmity with God. And no, this isn't a call to man up, to buck up, to create a checklist and then try and accomplish it. You must realize that just like we cannot fathom that we have the love of the Father, The same love that he loved the son with. Just as we can't fathom this outside of the word of God and the spirit illuminating the word to us, us being able to act to accomplish any good is impossible outside of the same one that has given us his love. The same one that says that his love is in us. Hear the author of Hebrews once again in chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he tells us how we run this race. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Do you know what the joy that was set before him was? Any idea? It's you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when a reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines. The one and uh, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews twelve one through six. Saints, it's the desire of your Savior for you to know him, to know who you are in him, that you no longer look at yourself and label yourself based off of the pains and hurts that you have that you no longer look at yourself and label yourself off of the talent and skills that you have, but that you would know who you are in him. You are holy. You are righteous. You are redeemed, justified, sanctified. These are the reality of who you are in Christ. And this is the life that we have been given This is the life that is found in knowing the Father and Jesus the Christ. And this is the life that Jesus desires us to live in. Now, not some point in our future. Now. And as good and as amazing as all this is, as gracious as all this is, it's not the end of the grace of God for us. Because one day, Not long from now, you will shed these eyes of faith that you have been given. You will be loosed from this body of death that surrounds the real you. You will be set free from the sin that so easily entangles you. And on that day, you will be given a new body. The same sort of body that Jesus has a glorified body, a body without sin. And for this reason, you will no longer need eyes of faith. On that day, you will know. And on that day, you will see your Savior face to face. And on that day, you will be like Him. And this blessed hope Is what drives us towards Christ likeness. Our new life is more than we could ever deserve. And we have lived like special needs children. Strive to know this life, to grasp the reality of who you are in Christ, and know that in that striving, Because we are still in the world, that world that hates the one that saved us, because of this, we will have tribulation. But strive to know this life, because one day soon, you will see this life. And knowing this life now will enable us to know this life better for all eternity, as we bask in his glory. The glory that is of the Father and the glory that is of the Son and the glory that is given us.